Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. This is Laura Hersher. I am here today with Kevin Mitchell, an associate professor at the Smurfit Institute of Genetics in uh, Trinity College, Dublin, and a member of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. Kevin is a neurogeneticist who studies how genes do and do not control the development of the human brain. He's the author of a wonderful new book called Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. For those of you who don't know him, what is wrong with you? You should know him. Go out and follow him on Twitter. Read his blog. Uh, It's Wiring the Brain, and that's his Twitter handle. Uh, Kevin is a very modern man who is a very old-fashioned thing, a philosopher-scientist. He is an evidence-driven philosopher, an empiricist who says of the processes by which the human brain assembles itself, they are complex but not magical, and yet you hear the awe and the wonder in his writing. I am reminded of uh, an echo of Darwin's own tribute to the natural world. There is a grandeur in this view of things. And when you hear him speak, you get to hear it in that great Irish accent. Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much. That's very kind. (laughs) Yeah, well, Kevin is one of those people, he knows this, I've been looking to have on here since the Beagle launched or or landed, I guess we landed is what we did, because um, what could be more interesting than the genetics of neurodevelopment? It's really the study of what it is to be human. Um, How much and how do your genes determine who you are? And how much do other factors, including, I hasten to add, chance? And at the heart, it's all the big question of free will, isn't it? How much do you control? Yeah, ultimately, it gets uh, it gets pretty philosophical, all right. Um, but uh, yeah, we can we can start on a the more scientific basis of of yeah, how does the brain get put together, and what does that um, what does that mean for differences in our psychology, differences in our personality, intelligence. And especially for, you know, things like risk of, of psychiatric disorders or neurological conditions, all of that is, is certainly partly genetic and in, in many cases very largely genetic. And as you alluded to, chance also plays a big role in that because the way that our brains develop is not strictly determined by our genes. The, the actual outcome of any run of development from any particular genotype has a lot of randomness in it. And so we see that in variation between monozygotic twins, for example, who even by the time they're born have very unique brains, are very different even from each other. Mm-hmm. See, I'm telling you, I, I was thinking today I, I, I would pitch a podcast and my podcast would be just every couple of weeks I'd call Kevin up and ask him <laughs> what he's thinking. <laughs> I was like, I would do that. I would listen to that podcast. <laughs> But we do All right. but we do have a topic for today that was raised by a series of recent articles that took at face value the idea um of offering polygenic risk scores for embryos in IVF setting, which I'm not even gonna mention the place because they don't deserve the publicity. But there is a company doing that. Uh including a polygenic risk score for intelligence among embryos. A recent gar Guardian article ran under the headline, uh, IVF couples could be able to choose the smartest embryo. And I think as geneticists, we know 
This is a very bad idea, but we may not all have at our fingertips the ability to explain why that is a very bad idea. But I have the man for the job. So let me start you off there. Is it true can couples pick the smartest embryo? Um, no. I mean, you can, in a statistical sense, maybe. Um, if you were doing you know, an, an animal breeding experiment over a long t- time period, then these kinds of polygenic scores would be useful for that. And then that, that, that's actually where they you know, originated is those um, what animal breeders call the breeding value of, uh, of an animal. And, and you could figure out that if you bred together, you know, cows that produced the most milk or had the highest, you know, pigs with the highest back fat or something like that, that over time you could shift the, um, you could shift the average in the next generation. And if you do that many, many times, then you can cause a big shift. So that's a statistical that's, thing. That's picking, picking which animals you're going to breed. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to selecting between embryos. That's right. So picking between embryos is, is a different matter. Um, and, but the, the logic is, is kind of the same. The point I was trying to make is that if you're doing animal breeding, you don't care about any particular animal that comes out. You, you care about the average across the population. And that's completely not the case in humans who are selecting uh, an embryo in IVF. There they really care about the particular embryo that they're selecting. And the point then is that the precision of the estimate, how good the score is at predicting an individual value, becomes really important then. So the polygenic scores for for intelligence are based on uh, population studies that have found hundreds uh, or thousands of genetic variants, so positions in the genome that that have some common difference there, where one of the versions at that uh, position is associated with intelligence. And if you bundle all of those together for any individual, then you'll get a, a score that puts them basically on a somewhere on a normal distribution of, of polygenic score for intelligence. And the people who are at the higher end of that will on average have higher intelligence than the ones at the lower end because that's how the score was calculated. But the range of intelligence scores uh, for people at any particular polygenic score will be huge. So we, you, you can see a group effect, you can see a statistical effect, but that doesn't mean you get precision for, for predicting individuals. Mm-hmm. I think this was based off of scores for educational attainment too, rather than IQ. Am I wrong about that? It, well, yeah. So the there's various ways that people have studied cognitive abilities, and some of them they use IQ tests. Uh, and some of them use proxies, either you know particular cognitive tests um, or educational attainment, or indeed uh, head volume or brain volume. All, all of these things are partly correlated with each other. And of course, educational attainment correlates really well with with IQ. It's a correlation of a 0.8. So um, educational attainment is an easy phenotype to get because a lot of the the um, genome-wide association studies that people have done for their participants, whatever they're looking at, they'll record educational um, attainment. And so it's a widely available phenotype. And when you do a genome-wide association study for educational attainment, you find lots of hits. And actually, the the variance that they explain now collectively in educational attainment in a in a new sample is 
getting to be pretty significant. So 15, 20%, um, some of the new ones maybe even a, a bit higher than that. So they do have predictive value in the sense that they explain uh, some of the variance in the trait in another population. Now, what they don't do is predict an individual with a lot of precision. And again, when it comes to embryos, that's what you're talking about. That's what you want. Um, you're not doing a group selection experiment. You're picking one embryo out of out of the set. But if At least you, that's the if proposal. You, so there was a preprint recently that said, well, the, the amount of variance that you could expect to get looking at two different embryos from the same parents, where, of course, most of this variants are shared, or many of them are shared, yes. um, is about three IQ points on average, and the chance that you actually pick the smarter embryo is, 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 is limited. Um, yeah, well, but- the, the, the range is a bit higher, actually. So the range between siblings may be uh, as much as 12 IQ points on average. Well, they, um, they weren't, diff- yeah, they weren't saying that, that the range was three points. They were saying that if you use this technique to pick... Yeah, the actual boost you would, on average, get get would be three IQ points. Yeah, that's sort of the range that you would be operating in. Um, the question is, if you made that selection, yeah, how you know how likely would it be that you would actually get that in any embryo? That's the average. Right, and that's they were the saying av- the chances right, so. chances were good that it, you wouldn't a high percentage of the time you wouldn't actually pick the smartest embryo based on the math and situation, which I I get. So it's like you're saying it doesn't make it useful. I actually thought, hmm, three points. People were saying, see, that's proof we shouldn't bother. No one's going to bother to do it because it's not effective. And I thought, well, yeah, but it was higher than I expected. And and I wondered this. If you, as a group, not as just a couple where you only produce one generation, but you sort of as a social group – decided we were going to use this and it was used generation after generation, this technique, would you really move the dial up then? Or is there sort of a hard limit on, on the top there? Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, in theory, you would move the dial up. I mean, that's a, that's a straightforward um, standard sort of selection experiment. It's, it's done in this case on, on the embryo's values as opposed to the parents, but that doesn't make much of a difference. You, you should change the mean of a population if you did that kind of, of selection because it's a statistical effect. Uh, now, the question is whether you butt up against some sort of, of um, upper limit. And that's a really interesting one because actually the genetics of intelligence is partly explained by these ancient common variants that percolate through the population. And they do that because they have very little effect by themselves. So uh, whenever a, a mutation arises in the population, if it has a big effect, usually it's a negative effect. And therefore, it's usually selected against pretty quickly. So the ones that persisted in the population, we we know by that logic that they don't have big effects. And that's the, that's the observation from the genome-wide association studies. However, those common variants collectively only um, explain maybe half of the genetic variants that affects the trait. And so the other half is due to rare mutations. And we all carry much rarer mutations, ones that arose in our, you know, directly in our parents, in the in the sperm or eggs that generated us, 
or in their parents or their parents or so there's a an idea called clan genomics which um, Jim Lupsky has talked about which I think is a really useful way of think, thinking about this that each of us carries a bunch of rare mutations that are that are new or recent and they have big effects individually on our phenotypes including on our intelligence and then we have a kind of a background this polygenic background of um, ancient variants and and that also has an effect the important thing is that no matter how much selection you're doing you're still going to be getting new uh, new mutations all the time so if you're just selecting on the polygenic scores you, you you're only seeing you're only affecting some of the genetic variation that's happening and even if you're pushing people up the new mutations will be constantly adding variation that drags people down again so we're we're, we're sort of um, running to stand still in a way and, and natural selection in essence is doing that anyway we're we are selected for intelligence it, it's associated with mortality it's associated with physical health it's associated with longevity and 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 so on so there's um there's a kind of a constant um race there to um to try and keep the genome mutation free but you know the natural selection can only do what it can do and it's like playing whack-a-mole you know every time you get rid of one of them another one comes up so yeah. um so i think there will be a constant sort of um a, an, an upper limit unless we start selecting against the rare mutations or or a sort of the burden of rare mutations now that's not yet doable uh but it's a it's a you know, it's a conceivable thing that that might be might be done, but the polygenic score approaches that are now being even advertised um, are not going to touch that aspect of genetic variation. I, I just want to follow up on what you're saying about rare mutations with one other note about this particular polygenic risk score embryo offer uh, marketing craziness. Um, yeah. The claim by the clinic, which is not really captured in the headline for the article is they say they're not selecting for intelligence but against intellectual delay yeah um and that i think is really disingenuous like lying of them because uh polygenic risk scores are not a way to select against intellectual delay right i mean that would be a rare variant issue yeah, I mean, their argument is that people at the very low end of the normal distribution of the polygenic score are predicted to have an IQ that could be around the same as someone with, with intellectual disability. That's their claim. Um, and that may be valid, although I, I'm, I'm a dubious for, for a, about for a that. Given, for a given couple, they're going to be looking at embryos within a certain range, right? Yes. So. Yeah. You know, it's not like one of your embryos is going to be at the top of the polygenic risk score range, and the other is going to be all the way at the bottom. Based no, you're on going to be in a pretty. Yeah, in you're going to be in a family. pretty narrow band. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're working in a, if you're working at the, if you're working outside of your band, it's because of something happened that's not captured by this test. Yeah, and I think you're right that it's disingenuous because the the, you know, the founder of the company has said very openly that what he hopes to do is. Is select for high intelligence. Uh, 
Yes, uh, he said know, that not, before no, he opened this company, which ex- now exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now he's like, no, no, we're not doing that at all. This is entirely people who are coming here. I mean, I think it's a very wink, wink, nod, nod sort of thing. So I don't like and, that. And, and you know, to get back to the the point that you were talking about earlier, where you know you're talking about three IQ points or something like that. Um, the thing is that that even if it's a statistical thing, even if the um, you know the actual precision is not great. People, I think, will still go for it. They, they'll see, okay, I can, you know, all things else being equal, as it were. Uh, if I have two embryos and one of them is predicted to have this, you know, shown to have this score that predicts this IQ and the other one is lower, um, yeah, I'm going to take the higher one because, uh, you know, oh, the, listen, the listen, I, statistics, I get that. you know, evens out. So I, I think uh... it's very tempting. I uh, I remember one of my uh, kids was exposed to lead when he was a little baby, and mm. we went to great lengths to decontaminate and treat treat it and find out, and it was it was very very distressing. And I remember my pediatrician saying, "Well, it just the amount of lead exposure that he had it, it just affects three to three to five IQ points. It's not statistically significant." And I'm like. Is that a phrase statistically significant in that case where, where it means yeah. it doesn't matter if it happens to someone else's child? Like that's how yeah, I interpreted yeah, yeah. that. Like I don't think parents feel three three IQ points is is irrelevant when it's their kid. No, I I I, I think not. And you know it, it raises, of course, so there's a whole host of other technical issues as well. So what we've been talking about up till now, that three IQ points, that's under sort of best case scenario where. You have made your polygenic score on an um, an ethnically matched sample to the people who are doing it because polygenic scores are very population specific. So you can't use one that was derived in in Europeans on people of non-European ancestry. And in fact, you probably even can't use one derived from Britain on people of German ancestry without having some you know some some confounds and population stratification issues and things like that. So there's a whole load of technical stuff that um, I think also, you know, should be highlighted here because the 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 idea that you can do this in principle if the scores are working, you know, maximally and all conditions are perfect, that's one thing, but they never will be. You know, in practice, they won't be. And, and so I think there's even stronger limits um, just in terms of the execution of it beyond the the principled limits that apply. And let's... We're, so we're so we're butting up against that subject. So let's go there. Uh, the, there's a difference between talking about polygenic risk scores for intelligence and polygenic risk scores for susceptibility to heart disease or breast cancer and so on. Yes. And uh, I, I, I think there's uh, an ethical difference and a real uh, and and a scientific difference. Both things. Both things are real. I don't mean to suggest that the ethical yeah, thing yeah. doesn't um, And um, you know. Because there is no group of people trying to claim that uh, they can justify their mistreatment of another group because they have natural rights based on their lipid levels, right? Like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. So yeah. we, we get into dicey territory talking about tests for intelligence. Um, and people have on, floundered on those shores, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, what is about this question of differences between between races let let me let me ask you something that i think but i don't know if it's true but it's the way i think about it and you can correct me 
We know that races intermix and the boundaries between races are actually quite porous. And, and so people will say race, it's not a thing. It's not a real thing. It's a construct. But at the same time, I think that that confuses, very legitimately confuses other people because they say, but I can see it. Yeah. Like you're talking about something I can see. So you are like denying my perceived experience and you're sure. trying to make, you know, make me feel like I, I, you're making me feel like, like, like it's, it's hard to have credibility when you're denying people's – but I think traits based on a single gene can become fixed fairly easily in a population. Mm-hmm. But things like intelligence, which is tied to just general fitness and thousands and thousands of genes – cannot easily get fixed in a single population. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a whole host of issues and and sort of misconceptions here. You touched on one of them to begin with, which is, are races real things? And are those categories actually hard and fast? Um, Do people naturally fall into, you know, three groups or four groups or five groups? And the answer is, no, they don't. It's an arbitrary point at which you can divide people. So people do have different, um, you know, ancient ancestries, but... Uh, where you draw the boundaries between them is is really arbitrary. You can you can go you know you can make ten boundaries. You can make twenty. You can make a hundred. You can go down to um, you know to local clans uh, if you want to. So the yeah. Th- and if you're those... and if you're gonna do it, picking seventeen different types of Europeans and then calling all Asians one group, that would probably yeah. not be the way to do it, right? Well, exactly. But but any at any level of this sort of tree, um, you know, there's there's no right answer to this. It's an arbitrary choice that people make to say, I'm going to say the cutoff is five or six or seven or a hundred. Um, so, and all, and also, you know, they, these aren't groups that, that have been separated from each other. So they're, they're, they're not homogeneous within each so-called group. And also uh, they're, you know, they're, they're more graded genetic differences. If you look across Europe, for example, there's loads of graded genetic differences as you go from from Eastern Europe to Central Europe to Western Europe and so on. So there's a, a cline of, of relatedness, and that's true across Africa, that's true across Asia and, and other areas. And of course, um, in, in the so-called New World, there's been all kinds of, um, of ancestral mixing uh, well, also in, in the rest of the world, too. But, we don't call but, it that over here. No, we don't call it so that over anymore. here in the so-called new world. Yeah, in the so-called funny. new world. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the the idea that, of course, people have different ancestries, and of course, you can detect that with genetic relatedness and so on, but those are not categorical differences. They're graded differences. And that makes a big difference if people are trying to lump, um, you know, groups of people into these hard and fast categories because they they're just not natural kinds they're not real things so there's that problem and then there's the idea that um you know observed differences in iq scores between ethnic groups um are due to genetic differences as opposed to all of the social cultural differences that we know pertain either between countries or between those groups within countries so um one of the, the the ideas is it goes like this: if there are, you know, if if genetics, if intelligence is heritable within a population, if that is, if some of the variation in intelligence within a population is due to genetic differences, 
and there are genetic differences between groups, then it makes sense that those differences will, would also affect intelligence. And that's a non sequitur. So the, that, that's not actually the case. If anything, the individual differences that happen are actually going to counteract any kind of um, push towards a consistent group difference because they'll be churning this churn of, of genetic variation within a, any population all the time. And uh, natural selection, of course, will be operating on individuals within each uh, within each population and generally trying to remove really deleterious mutations which are arising constantly and so um, to think that you could get a scenario where you would have very consistent differences in in a polygenic trait like iq between two huge groups who you know there's continental groups for that to happen you'd have to have massive massive consistent directional selection that's different between the two groups but that's the same within each of the groups across all of the environments that are that pertain across all these um, you know continental regions, and so I find the idea just deeply implausible that that would be the case. And of course, there is no evidence that there is that that, that is the case. Um, we know that social factors. Things like you know maternal uh, nutrition and health and infant healthcare and um, education uh, all make huge um, have huge effects on on IQ performance, and so it seems uh, logical and parsimonious to uh, think that those are the, the those are the major causes for the observed differences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I do think that it is one of the less well understood or harder to explain things that, that, that the sort of the more frequently confused issues is how different monogenic or things that are a couple of genes involved inheritance is yeah. than big pictured complex genetics that involves thousands of genes are really, I, I, I try to explain it to people saying it's like uh, every gene contributes the way the zip code of your community where you're born contributes that's here right and so you could create different differences between one neighborhood in new york and another neighborhood in new york uh, and they're they're meaningful on a population level but mm -hmm. you understand how that contributes and then, yeah, and then I, the other the other types of genes are like yes but your zip code is yemen or yeah. yeah. Cambodia in the 1970s, right? Like, like, yes. like yeah. that's the differences. Um, yeah. But we're using the same words and the same terms, and it's it's terribly confusing. It, it is, and I think one of the one of the you know key things is that the pool of genetic variation that affects a polygenic trait like intelligence is very dynamic. It's not just that there's one set of variants and you can enrich them in one population and, and enrich the, the ones at the other end of the spectrum in another population. That's, that's not the scenario um, because you have all these rare variants entering the population all the time and they make a huge contribution to the trait. So uh, it, it, you know, it's like trying to stir the milk to one side of your coffee. It, mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen uh, it's because it's that's constantly getting, I love getting that. churned up. So Yeah. 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 Um, so, but let me let me undercut my own argument and ask you this: um, mixed in to this general fitness and this general intelligence, not covered by this polygenic risk score, mixed in, 
could you have, you know that you could have a single gene that breaks that would have an enormous deleterious effect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously. Like, you know, obviously. I mean, we see that in clinical genetics all the time, right? That's, sure, sure. You know, like, how smart would this person be if this gene wasn't broken? We will never know. Well, actually, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Laura, but there, just there is some evidence where um, where we could know actually how smart they would be otherwise. And so, for example, there are well-known deletions and, and duplications or so-called copy number variants that are associated with risk of conditions like autism and schizophrenia and other psychiatric um, presentations. And the actual phenotype that anybody who carries one of those presents with is quite variable. And some of the people who carry them don't have any clinical diagnosis and have gone around their whole lives perfectly unaware that they carry one of these um, pretty um, potent mutations, basically. Mm -hmm. And so when people look at the, the, the sort of clinically unaffected carriers of these copy number variants, what they find is that their IQ is considerably lower than the general population. So they're still within the normal range, mm -hmm. but if they started with, a, you know, if they would have had a high IQ otherwise, because they say they had a high score and this polygenic background, uh, and they and they inherit one of these mutations, then their IQ can drop below what it would have been. And the way that they can look at that is to see, well, relative to their siblings who didn't inherit that, you know, that kind of gives a family background. Right. Um, and, and relative then you effectively using their polygenic score as well, you can say, okay, well, they, they, you know, we would have expected them to be here. But now we see with these copy number variants that, you know, their IQ is about 15 or 20 points lower than it would have been otherwise. And so those copy number variants are just, they're a class of mutation that are easy to see. It's easy for us to detect those because they recur at particular positions. We get many, many instances of the same thing and we can collect those kinds of data. But of course, we all carry hundreds of rare mutations, you know, probably 100 to 200 proper rare mutations that do something to a protein. And many of those will have deleterious effects. So, so all of us have some load of rare mutations of varying effect size that are pulling us down from uh, what I kind of think of as the platonic ideal of what a fully wild-type human intelligence would be like if such a thing ever existed. Of course, no fully wild-type human has ever existed uh, in our evolution. But um, you can kind of think of it that way, that we're all being dragged down from um, the, uh, the sort of potential of our species if we, um, if we actually manage to get rid of all, our, all those serious mutations. Yeah. And so, so, so here's, here's my, and you can interrupt me anytime. That's just, just you hall pass on interrupting. Uh, me. Okay. Thanks. Um, what I was going to ask you was, do you think that there's ever the equivalent of a single gene change that could substantially boost some specific aspect of intelligence? Like you have a single gene change to change memory or yeah, executive yeah. function, or is, is, yeah. is, does the math gene exist? Yeah, well, that's interesting. So, I mean, in humans, you can say, well, look, there are mutations that we know cause autism, where sometimes the presentation of that has some kind of a savant-like skill. Um, it could be an amazing memory or lightning calculations or things like that. Um, now, 
I wouldn't call that intelligence. It's certainly not general intelligence, but it's a it's a thing, you know, it's a cognitive function that that some people could score more highly and sometimes vastly, you know, outstrip the potential of people who don't carry that kind of a mutation. Um, now, I wouldn't say that's beneficial, but it, it in a broad sense. Um, but it it on a you know if you're just narrowly looking at one particular sort of ability, then you could say, well, okay, maybe. And of course, in in mice, there's lots of mutations that can be made, or well, lots. There's some known any anyway that that boost memory performance. Say. Um, now again, that's people look at that and go, look, oh great, a memory booster gene, or uh, my mouse is smarter, it does a maze faster, or something like that. Um, but again, I don't think that's a beneficial thing. You know, there's a level there that um, that that of memory, say, that exists for a reason. You know, we don't want to remember everything. It's a burden, in fact, to to remember everything. Um, so, you know, tweaking tweaking things, even if even if ostensibly some particular cognitive variable increases um, generally wouldn't make me confident that that that's an overall um, a good thing to do yeah yeah no I mean actually the example you give is is interesting because it's less of an example of something that's a boost and more of a cautionary tale yeah Um, but uh, a good cautionary tale in genetics because everything is quite pleiotropic and you can and and in this case not only pleiotropic but also probably one system balanced against another system. So you would yeah, have to anticipate yeah. that any great gain in one area would have to come at some cost, right? Otherwise, we would have evolved that way. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, I think it's a general principle that makes sense, and certainly um, the idea that there are genetic variants or genes in a molecular biology sense that are dedicated to you know intelligence is just not right in fact all of the um, evidence to date suggests that the genetic variants that affect intelligence either the common ones or the rare ones are mainly hitting genes that are involved in neural development they're not genes for intelligence they're genes for building a brain and and in a sense you can think that intelligence kind of reflects in a very general way how well your brain is put together. Not not the function of some particular part of the brain, not some particular neurotransmitter pathway or, you know, how fast your neurons fire or their metabolism or anything like that. Just kind of the outcome of development, really the robustness with which your um, with which your brain has been put together. And that's reflected in, in some way in the efficiency of cognitive functions. But it's also interestingly reflected, I think, in the ability to buffer um, insults. And you can see that in, in, for example, patients with a stroke or, uh, you know, with dementia or other conditions like that, where the pre-morbid IQ is actually a, a, a decent correlate of how likely someone is to recover. So higher IQ pre-morbidity morbidity is, uh, is indicative of a, a higher rate of recovery, which suggests that, uh, again, the brain is more robust. And in a genetic sense... What's really interesting is that you can think of that polygenic background for intelligence as also a an indicator of neurodevelopmental robustness. And, you know, I referred to it earlier, the idea you could have two people who both inherit, say, the same chromosomal deletion, but one of them has a higher polygenic score for intelligence 
that manifests greater neurodevelopmental robustness, they're more able to buffer the effects of that mutation and less likely to have a severe clinical pre presentation, if any. While another person who started with a, a lower IQ and a lower, um, lower robustness is more vulnerable to the effects of that deletion during brain development and can end up in a state that's more affected by that. So I think of the um, of I think of IQ as an indicator of that neurodevelopmental robustness, which means it it does have some relevance for clinical genetics. And in fact, if you look at you know polygenic scores for intelligence, they they correlate with polygenic scores for risk of say schizophrenia. So there there's some um, there's some good evidence that that's a that that's a reasonable way to think about what it is that IQ is actually telling us. You know, what what is the underlying biology and why that may be of interest uh, in a clinical sense as well as as well as uh, you know in an educational sense. So this this brings us around perfectly to what I wanted to ask as the last question because we've we've talked about the value limited maybe in a given generation but could get better. It could have some value in certain situations. And you're really making a case kind of for polygenic risk score having some value, uh, even though it might not predict for an individual all that well. Uh, still, it might be an indicator of general fitness or whatever. So I'm not, not endorsing this, these scores in particular or the concept, but I want to ask this, this final question. If we could create a polygenic risk score and it could be a decent indicator of a better shot at a, at a mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should, should we? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. Of course, it touches on all, all kinds of ethical and moral um, issues. And so, you know, in the first instance, you could say, well, let's let's think about the, the current proposal to select for intelligence. And there's loads and loads of arguments against that. Um, and they have to do with, you know, the, the, the value that we put on different kinds of traits, the idea that intelligence, you know, it's just obvious that we should select for that as opposed to, you know, doing the genetics of, of kindness or um, of happiness. I mean, happiness is a personality trait. Why not select for happiness? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a ton of things that you could do, um, but most of the proposals are to select for intelligence. And it's interesting that they're mostly coming from people who think they would have been the embryo that would have been selected. <laughs> Listen, maybe uh, for their first child, they want to select for, their, for intelligence. By their third child, they might want to select for sleeping well. Yeah, exactly, for docility and, and obedience. Um, no, no, never. But anyway, so, so, so there's, a whole, there's a whole host of questions there. But when you change to thinking about general fitness, um, then the tenor of the debate changes a bit, I think. Um, now, I, I wouldn't endorse that personally, but that's a personal opinion, not a scientific one. Um, but I think you could definitely argue that, okay, look, we're not going to select for intelligence. We're not going to select for any particular trade for, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes is the, the, the sort of um, cliched um, thing. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to select for genetic health. And that means we're going to take the embryo with the fewest mutations or the lowest overall mutation load. And actually, in the movie Gattaca, a well-known movie, that's the scenario 
that that they're talking about the idea that that's been done generation to generation to generation and there's a great scene in that in which the couple um who are the parents of the protagonist are hemming and hawing about whether to do this and their genetic counselor or i don't know what he was called in that instance but um said to them well you want to give your child the best start in life don't you that's a really hard thing to say mm, no we'll take our chances um but but actually so so once you get into that then i think you're you're into a territory that becomes harder to argue against however i think there are some broader issues that we don't um that we don't talk about enough here which is first of all the idea that um one person is a you know or an embryo uh is a better quality person or a superior um in in some way right so you're making a judgment about genetic health or intelligence or whatever the trait is and that you know the fact of making that judgment entails the idea that some people are better than others and that is not something that i'm comfortable with but uh, you know if, if parents will say well look it's my my child it's my decision uh you know i we we already screen against say down syndrome uh you know what's the difference here we're only doing it in the more positive direction and and that you know it's a it's a valid uh enough counter argument uh within its within the limits of its own scope but the, the other issue that kind of bothers me more um is the idea of commodification of children the idea that some children are going to be better than others and you want the best ones and to me that has a danger of changing the parent child relationship and uh, you know this is gets into really sort of um moral and and in some cases uh theological territory because it's something that a lot of um you know major religions would talk about but i think you can uh, you can approach it just from a philosophical moral kind of point of view the idea that if we move to a, a um a, a common practice of selecting the best children well what does that say about the way that we relate to our children what does that say about um how we how we view them as opposed to just accepting them as they are um it, with all their wonderful um wonderful variety of of talents and skills and personalities and so on um you know we're saying well geez i i really would rather uh have had this type of a child or i would rather have this one you know in the future and and to me there's a um there's a sort of a really broad question there that uh it, the the danger is is broader than the outcome of any particular selection it's the the fact that in a society we would begin to engage in that type of thing that i think has the danger of changing um the nature of that relationship in ways that yeah, could be hard to predict and and not necessarily positive yeah well that is that is a virtually unanswerable point it's really uh, something i've thought about a lot i think of that line from frost he says family is uh who when you go there they have to take you in. Yes. And uh, to lose something of that unconditional nature of the relationship. Uh I mean because when you purchase something uh you you expect to get what you paid for. Well, exactly. And of course, uh, you know, going back to the technical limitations, what if you don't? What if you don't? Yeah. Well, a lot to think about. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was this is really great and a big treat for me personally. Great. Um, well, likewise. Uh, and thank you also, audience, for joining us today. As And please go to BeagleLanda.com, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Thanks. Bye. Bye.